Welcome, everyone. This is the Mendocino College Symposium. My name is Nika Aguirre, and I teach history here at the college. This symposium series was started a while back to kind of bring together our community and the college to talk about concerns that we have and things that we want to work on in our community. This particular symposium is called Caring Classrooms, Supporting Mendocino County Students' Mental Health Needs Now and Beyond the Pandemic. And I know it's really close to my heart. I have students who are in the schools, and as a teacher, um, this is something that we're really worrying about and, and trying to focus on. Our speaker today is Professor Vincent Potteria. Um, he lives in Fort Bragg with his wife and two kids. Vincent loves teaching and writing. Before he came here, he taught in Kansas, Florida, and Southern California, and worked as a journalist in Sri Lanka and Minnesota. Vincent also writes fiction and poetry, which has been published in a variety of places. He holds a BA from Carleton College and an MFA from the University of Florida. Awesome. Thanks so much, Nika. I just wanted to say hello. I'm Vincent, and it's a privilege to be sharing this virtual space with you all. Um, speaking is not my favorite endeavor, um, but I'm still honored to be able to talk to you about some of the pressing trauma-related and mental health-related challenges um, Mendocino County students are currently facing, and as well as some ways to address them. I teach English at Mendocino College, so um, I want to clarify that I'm not a psychologist, not a social worker, I am not a counselor, I'm not a clinician of any kind. Um, and in fact, my graduate degree is a Master of Fine Arts in fiction writing. So I do not have professional training in providing mental health services to students or others in the county. I have some mental health first aid training, but this, this is not a talk that's coming from that expert lens. Um, this is coming from the lens of somebody who started teaching here back in January of 2018. And so I've been living here for about three years and, and I'm still kind of a relative newcomer, though, though I feel really happy to be living in this county. I love this county a lot. And I, I really love living in Fort Bragg, where my wife and, and I and River and Avery, my daughter, moved a couple months ago. Um, but with that said, from the perspective of an outsider, when I started to teach at Mendocino College, it quickly became clear to me that students were dealing with a lot more here in, in Mendocino County, as well as my students in Lake County, but I'm focused on my Mendocino County students here, um, than they were dealing with in Kansas, in Southern California, in Florida. And that's not to say that those students weren't dealing with a lot. Just on average, it felt to me like students were dealing with even more um, in our area. So um, I started asking myself, my students, my colleagues, like, what can I do to help to, to, to help my students succeed? What resources do we as a community college need? What resources do we as a county need? And that led me to pursue some more training and, and reading about trauma-informed and culturally relevant teaching practices that I'm going to share. And I recognize that schools and especially educators are being asked to do a lot right now, frankly, too much. So I just want to talk about some concrete strategies as well as review some data and propose just a few ideas about how we might uh, provide more consistent countywide resources. So that's enough about me. Let's now move on to just doing kind of an overview of some of the terms and concepts and data. All right. So again, 
for this presentation, we're going to be looking at three questions, not answering any of them fully, but giving my best to provide as much information and ideas as I can in response to each one. The first is how are Mendocino County students' experiences with trauma and mental health challenges different from those of students elsewhere in the state and the county? What can educators do to better support students experiencing toxic stress? I'm going to define that for folks and other mental health issues. And how can Mendocino County provide more consistent support resources? So this is what we're going to do. Okay, so for me, talking about this is difficult and hearing about this can be difficult too. But it's, it's important that we first provide um, just a definition for what this means. I really like this one from the writer and um, counselor, Resma Menicum. Trauma is the body's response to an event, a series of events, or an ongoing circumstance that is experienced by the individual as, in, as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening, and that has lasting impacts on how the individual relates to the world. Lasting impacts. It impacts our well-being similar to experiences of scarcity and toxic stress. So it's easy to talk about trauma in this large kind of vague sense, but we want to think about how we can actually measure that and how we can get a sense of what students in our county and residents of our county are experiencing in relation to trauma. And the best way that we measure it is through what we call um, ACE scores. That's probably a familiar term for some, maybe unfamiliar for others. ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And those are events that are potentially traumatic that occur between the ages of zero and 17 years old. Some of those involve your own experience of violence, abuse, or neglect, potentially witnessing violence, um, having a family member die or by or attempt suicide, as well as aspects of a child or a teen's environment related to substance misuse, mental health problems from family members or caregivers, instability due to parental separation in regards to incarceration. So those adverse experiences are how we check if folks are being affected by trauma. This is um, some data from Child Trends, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization. And this is data from 2016 that was published in 2018. I, 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 we're just looking at this as a comparison to our county. So in the rest of the United States, um, they do a breakdown by race. As you can see, besides Black youth in the United States who 39, only 39% of Black youth have not experienced an adverse childhood experience. Over half of every other uh, ethnic and racial group has, has not experienced one. So you can see in the Pacific, their rates are actually a little bit lower than on average in the United States. Let's look at Mendocino County. 
So um, before doing so, these are some of the lifelong impacts of these adverse childhood experiences. Um, there, there's a range of impacts from opportunities related to education and work and income to mental health, from depression to anxiety to PTSD, from other health-related issues, whether they be infectious disease or chronic disease like cancer, diabetes, it's not mentioned here, but strokes, um, as well as risky behaviors, um, substance uh, abuse, unsafe sex, um, even injury to one's body, which is interesting from, you know, broken bones to traumatic brain injuries. So, and, and this is an infographic that is, was developed from a, a really important study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that, that did a lot, a deep dive into how these adverse childhood experiences create these lasting negative health impacts. So I think it's easy to look at someone who has experienced some of these ACEs and, and blame the family and blame the caregivers of that child or that youth. I really like this infographic that's a framework that we're going to look at in terms of community resilience later in the presentation. But for now, I think it's helpful because we see um, Wendy Ellis shows us that, hey, these, these adverse childhood experiences don't come out of nowhere. You know, they're like a tree growing from these roots of these adverse community environments, Right environments in which there is systemic poverty, there's systemic discrimination and racism, there's community disruption, which we know very well about in this county with our environmental disasters, particularly for wildfires. There's a lack of opportunity, um, economic opportunity in particular. There's lack of affordable housing. There's community violence, right? A lot of these community factors we, uh, we experience here in this county. And I'm going to show you some data on that shortly. So I, I think it's really important that we, while we're talking specifically about Mendocino County, you're going to see that many rural areas are disproportionately affected by these adverse childhood experiences and negative lasting impacts from them. And there was kind of a groundbreaking study by the Center for Youth and Wellness in 2014, a nonprofit in San Francisco, where they, they looked at counties across California because they really wanted to see how many Californians are being exposed to these ACEs, these adverse childhood experiences. And what a lot of rural educators saw in this data was, as this quote here says, very validating. Um, for both educators and county residents, what folks had expected. So this is just a question out of the 58 California counties, where do you think Mendo ranks in terms of residents with at least one ACE, at least who've experienced at least one adverse childhood experience? Out of 58, where do we feel like Mendo ranks? We'll check it out. 
Unfortunately, there's only three counties that above 70% of residents have experienced one, at least one adverse childhood experience, and Mendocino County is one of them. In fact, we are tied for second with Humboldt County based on this study from the Center for Youth Wellness that 75.1% of residents have one or more ACE. Again, based on this 2014 study from the Center of Wellness. I'll say that one more time. 75.1% of residents have one or more, have experienced one or more adverse childhood experiences. Um, right? We're almost first in the state for this not particularly pleasant um, data point. I know for me, at least, when I started looking at this and I, and I first discovered this, I want to say a year and a half ago, maybe close to two, yeah, about a year and a half ago, I, it, it, like, like I quoted in that previous slide, I, did, I, I felt some validation because it, it, it pointed to me to this larger systemic issue that this county was having that I saw in my students that they shared with me in their experiences. And, and it really broke my heart, to be honest. And, and initially it, it made me feel a little powerless and a, a little lost even. But from that, um, I, I felt like I needed to figure out more, like how, how do we deal with this? So this, this data is from a 2016 community health needs assessment helmed by the Healthy Mendocino organization here in our county. And that particular assessment was identifying how childhood trauma and adverse uh, childhood experiences are the most or one of the most pressing health priorities in the county. So we were looking at uh, how many residents have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience. Now we're looking at how many have experienced at least two. You can see nationally, that's 21.7%. In California, that's 17%. In Mendocino County, that's 31%. We are almost double the California average based on that 2016 assessment in the, the number of residents that have experienced at least two adverse childhood experiences. This, again, is reflected in things such as our higher domestic violence rates, our higher child abuse rates, our higher child mortality rates, the higher percentage of children who receive reduced or free lunches, the higher percentage of teens who use marijuana, use cannabis. Um, and again, this relates to these adverse community environments, unaffordable or poor quality housing, discrimination, which is a nice way of saying, you know, racism and classism, lack of opportunity and economic mobility. So not, again, the most fun stuff to look at, but I think it's really important so that we see where we were before the pandemic. You are listening to KZYX. This is Vincent Pacharica, Professor of English and Mendocino College Symposia Talk, Caring Classrooms and Communities, Supporting Mendocino County Students' Mental Health Needs Now and Beyond the Pandemic. The, a friend of mine who, who, who 
he was a researcher for the University of Washington um, on child development, recommended that I look at Harvard University's Center for the Developing Child. This is just from their Q&A about what toxic stress is, and I thought it was really helpful for helping others understand because I think it's easy to look at ACEs and to think about adverse childhood experiences and, and, and think, well, that happened to someone who was five years when they were five. Like, why is that a big deal? You know, that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because these ACEs, as they, uh, as they write in this, um, in this description, they can get under the skin and they can trigger these biological reactions that lead to toxic stress. So, it, and this relates to a lot of scientific research and knowledge about having this excessive activation of stress response systems in our body, right? Our, 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 our sympathetic nervous system on, uh, particularly on a child's developing brain. Um, it also impacts, right, the immune system, the metabolic regulatory systems, and cardiovascular system. So what's, what's really intense and, and where this relates to how this affects college students, you know, who range, for, for my students at Mendocino College, have ranged in age from 15 to 72, right? We, we have this wonderful diverse age range. But those who have experienced these adverse childhood experiences and this toxic stress, this triggers this excessive and long-lasting stress response, which, which can have this wear and tear effect on the body. What I also liked about Harvard's description is that not only are they looking at how ACEs trigger this, this hyper-stress response that becomes toxic in the body, not just ACEs they were looking at as causes, but also community and systemic issues, right? Such as violence, such as racism and chronic poverty, right? That a a child might grow up in a very stable, loving home, but still live in an environment where they're continually exposed to these really intense stressors in their communities. Um, and our body learns to view all kinds of things as threats and, and be on high alert when we're exposed to these experiences longer in childhood. So, right, it, it, again, this is heavy stuff, but I think it's really important to know in order to meet our students where they are. And again, I, I don't want to make a blanket statement about all Mendocino County students, but again, you, you've seen that data. It's intense. So, Moving right along, I just thought this infographic was helpful, right? The difference between positive stress, because stress, of course, can be good, right? You know, our county is doing really well in our vaccine response to the pandemic. And many of us have received that vaccine and have had that positive stress reaction to getting that injection in our arms, right? As part of our immune response. Many of us have also, especially during this year, had some serious temporary stress responses, right? Those of us in inland Mendocino County, we, many of us were in smoke or had to be evacuated, right? Friends of ours had to be evacuated and stayed with us from Brook Trails when we were living in Ukiah. And and that was a very serious temporary stress. 
it becomes toxic when that stress is so prolonged and, and as well as when there's not these protective relationships to help mitigate that stress. And again, that is why as educators, as counselors, as others listening to this talk, providing that, those protective relationships in classrooms is so essential. Again, this is just some more data. We were looking at the higher um, domestic violence rates, child mortality rates, teens who use marijuana rates, substantiated child abuse rates in Mendocino County. There's also the the higher percentage of children living in poverty, right? 24% in Mendo versus 18% in the state. Um, It's pretty, it's exactly even for severely unaffordable or unsafe homes, but that is a statewide issue, as many of us know. Um, The rate of drug overdose deaths is substantially higher, 12 per 100,000 people in California versus 27 per 100,000 people throughout the state. Um, I didn't really know exactly how to talk about this, uh, and I got feedback from a number of people, um, but I thought it was important to also mention that there are some unique adverse aspects of living in Mendocino County. There is an unregulated underground economy that we are all familiar with. Most of us associate it particularly with cannabis, but it extends beyond that. And that's part of our culture. Um, But that culture also leads to more secrecy and also leads to more distrust. There's also quite a lot of historical trauma, particularly the genocide and disenfranchisement of local tribes. I do not have that experience. I cannot speak to that experience. Many of my students have shared that experience, and it is incredibly awful. We also have a very high wildfire uh, rate in this county. And of the top 20 largest wildfires in the state of California, two of them began in Mendocino County. So of the top 20 largest California wildfires, two, the top two began in Mendocino County. And those are both recent. And lastly, you know, cultural norms that can be really positive, such as rugged individualism, doing things yourself, can sometimes provide barriers to reaching out and asking for help. And, and I just thought it was important to at least note that we have some special elements to our culture in this county. And again, I'm not a I'm not judging them, but I think that just like dealing with things in our classrooms and and, in our communities, it's important to see what's there and acknowledge it. And then, of course, we have the COVID-19 pandemic. We have all been experiencing a mass death event globally. We are the leading, we have not, I should not say leading, we have the most deaths in the world in the United States with 562,741 people and counting who have died as a result of this disease. And in our neighboring country of Mexico, which we in Mendocino County have a close relationship with Mexico, many of us do. And Mexico has the third most deaths of any country in the world as of earlier today with 209,702 and counting people. It's also tough because 
there are there's changing public health guidance and community norms throughout our county, our state, and our nation. So it's hard to know, even from day to day, what the expectations are and, and what the guidance is for how to handle this pandemic. And lastly, we've all experienced this in different ways, but intense physical isolation and social isolation. So again, this is the heavy part of the talk. We're almost done with it. So just a little bit of data since the pandemic, 40% of U.S. adults, and this is a CDC study from June of 2020. So there was a survey that they did for a week in late June, and 40% of U.S. adults reported struggling with mental health and substance use. That's a lot. That is a lot. Also. I think it's really important to note that particularly in, in looking at our college students who, again, range in age, but we have a higher number of 18 to 24-year-olds, the average number of those surveyed had seriously considered suicide. That number more than doubled for 18 to 24-year-olds. 25.5% had seriously considered suicide. And there was a higher uh, suicidal ideations for Latinx respondents, for non-Latinx um, Black respondents, for self-reported unpaid caregivers, and for essential workers. Many of my students fall under two or three or four of these categories. So looking at that data and reflecting on what my students continue to share with me, it was really hard to look at, but it was also not surprising. So last bit of data, uh, Mendocino College has been taking a lot of uh, student surveys, but mostly about students' basic needs. Um, this is a question from our fall 2020 needs survey, and it was asking students, do you need academic or personal counseling? or socio-emotional support during the quarantine. So again, it's asking for if, if students need either or. So it's not, do you need social-emotional support only? I think what's interesting about the response is only 23%, 23.43% of respondents out of the 572 students who responded said that they would like or, or need some counseling or socio-emotional support. Again, this, this, this kind of points towards something that I, I continually have to model for my students, which is asking for help. And you would think that at this point in the pandemic, more folks would be asking for help, but a lot, a lot of students are still, are still not. When you look at some of the qualitative answers to, is there anything else you need in order to, com to successfully complete the fall 2020 semester? you know, I, there's, there's many different responses. I just, uh, I just included a few. And, and these are from students and uh, from the survey, just for the world to stop being so crazy. Can you believe we've been pretty much locked in our houses for six months? I really relate to that one. This one is heartbreaking. Right now, I'm extremely depressed and I'm having trouble not bursting into tears several times a day. 
And this last one, I just thought was really emblematic of what I hear from a lot of students and just the tone. I hope to get through the tough times this fall. Thank you for your help. I highlighted that thank you for your help because of the, of the, the different colleges and schools where I've taught. I find my Mendocino College students in some ways the, the kindest, the sweetest and the, the most unwilling to, to, to think it's okay to, to ask people for, for what they need. And I think that, that thank you for your help is, is just, I, I get that so much. I mean, I can just think about the last week and, and the many, uh, I, I had an essay um, that was due on Sunday and a lot of my students had a lot going on as they've had throughout the semester. And when they were telling me about that and I said, Hey, if you need more time, that's okay. Take it. How does taking another week sound? And they were just beyond grateful in a way that was just like, of course you can have more time. And uh, anyways, I just thought I'd highlight that. So here's some concrete stuff uh, in response to this question of what can educators do to better support students experiencing toxic stress and other mental health issues? So this is my thesis. Um, it's pretty simple. Uh, and my thesis is students need to feel safe and supported. So we need to create classes in which they do. Students need to feel safe and supported. So we need to create classes in which they do. And that is the end of my talk. <laughs> it is not. But, um, before getting into some concrete strategies, um, I just wanted to look at one slide, and, and it refers to this theory that um, called the, the polyvagal theory. The, the polyvagal theory is rooted in this understanding of the nervous system, which is right, our sympathetic nervous system is responsible for activating our responses to danger and to stress, and it activates that flight or flight response. And that parasynthetic nervous system is responsible for activating our bodily responses that allow for rest, for digestion, and for connection. And that's where this, this vagus nerve, that's where, it, where its home is in that parasynthetic system. So this theory is just proposing that we, we want our students to be grounded in their parasynthetic nervous system so that they can feel connected in our classes and, and, and better able to learn, right? I mean, and this is where, you know, in conversations that I've had, you know, I, I think it makes some folks uneasy to feel like they have to simultaneously be kind of amateur counselors and therapists. But at the same time, like my job as an educator is to help to do what I can to help my students, you know, learn what they're supposed to learn in the courses, succeed in them, and, and ideally feel inspired by them. So I want to figure out what I can do so that they're grounded in their parasynthetic system and they feel connected, right, to the greater world when they're, when they're in class. It, it's tough to do in an online environment, but some of these strategies can be used both ways. Um, I love this picture. This is a picture of might have been one of our last face-to-face uh, -face graduations, uh, maybe three years ago. But for those who can't see the picture, it's the, the back of a student's graduation hat. And it reads, she believed she could, so she did. 
She believed she could, so she did. And that's what we want our students to feel like. We want them to feel like they believe that they can succeed and that they can feel connected in our classrooms. You are listening to Vincent Potterica, Professor of English and the Mendocino College Symposia Talk, Caring Classrooms and Communities, Supporting Mendocino County Students' Mental Health Needs Now and Beyond the Pandemic. All right, so some specific ideas for helping students feel safe in our classrooms and, 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 and try to lower that toxic stress and create those buffering relationships so that uh, folks in our classrooms feel like that they have these safe people that they can turn to. The first one, like, doesn't really seem that, that touchy-feely or trauma-informed, but being flexible and transparent is huge. Um, particularly for deadlines and policies, especially related to grading. Instead of this mindset of we need students to learn about the real world and give them a hard deadline, if they don't mean it, they get an F or they get docked a, a bunch of points. We need to be more flexible with those deadlines and policies. And the longer I've been teaching here, the more flexible I've become because it's a lot more important for me for students to do the work, to understand it, to improve as writers and critical thinkers than it is for them to meet a deadline. And just at full disclosure, I think I was supposed to give this talk originally, I don't know, two separate dates. And Nika just was flexible with me and let me give it now because I was moving and then something else came up. So like when people make this, these distinctions that in the real world deadlines are these fixed impenetrable barriers like that's not always true so food for thought for those of you of that school um co-created assignments are are those in which students are part of that process like i like to give students the ability to read drafts of my assignments the first time that i give them as well as propose ideas for how to improve them like i did at the beginning of this presentation I repeated a few times what I was going to talk about, and I, it's also really important in our classrooms to give clear, specific guidelines so that students have a sense of what is going to be expected of them, right? I know I feel safer when I know what's, what the time constraints I have for this presentation, when it's going to be, how I'm supposed to log in, if I'm supposed to present for 45 minutes or an hour, et cetera, et cetera. I, 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 the, those guidelines allow me to, to have less stress and to accomplish the task. Also giving students more extra credit opportunities. I give students the opportunity to anytime they see an error in any of my course materials, including my emails or messages to them, I give them an extra credit point if they point it out to me. I, among other ways that they earn it, as well as individual conferences and or check-ins where you can let students know, hey, I'm noticing this. Uh, what can I do to help you? Being consistent is another big thing. So beyond just being flexible and transparent, being consistent, um, an idea that I've read about a lot is ritualizing practices and community norms. Um, for example, starting classes in a similar way. You know, when I was teaching an in-person composition class, we used to begin every class with some kind of a mindfulness activity to center ourselves. That was just part of the ritual of the class. Also, you know, there's some other examples here, like 
low stakes formative assessments, which means things like journals or quizzes that can be open book or other, other assignments that, that build towards summative assignments. So in my case, that's mostly essays. So I give students journals and peer review activities so that they build towards that essay instead of just saying, hey, here's the assignment, figure it out. We're ritualizing that experience so students know that I'm going to give them an assignment. I'm going to give them things to work up to completing it. And we're going to go through a process. I mentioned it already in the presentation, but again, modeling that habit of asking questions is I've, I found so important. I, I, I consistently in every message to students, let me know if you have any other questions. I'm happy to answer questions as well as quickly responding to students at, whenever possible. And something else that I've ritualized, especially in my online classes is anytime a student doesn't turn in an assignment, I reach out. I just say, hey, I noticed that you didn't submit this. Is there anything I can do to help? And leave it there. So being mindful, intentional, and kind. It's also important to be mindful and aware about our own stressors and our students' stressors. You know, I mean, when I'm having stressors um, and or things that make it so that I can't be timely with students, I let them know in announcements or messages online, and I let them know in face-to-face classes. You know, for example, when we were when I was moving a couple months ago, I let my students know, hey, I'm not going to be in contact for a few days. You know, if I apologize in advance, but this is what's going on with me. Just being open. Creating space and opportunities for students to build connections and cultivating social support. This is tougher to do in an online environment, but there's still ways in which asking students questions, giving them discussions in which they can communicate. But certainly this is much easier done in a face-to-face or hybrid class. And regularly encouraging students to use campus services. So I'll I'll get back to that with the equity-related suggestion. Uh, Lastly, using that inclusive strengths-based language rather than saying, you know, I I need you to do this. We're in this together. We really need to focus on doing X, Y, or Z this week. I also just wanted to give a shout out to our two Mendocino College health counselors, Rachel Young and Jeremy Owen Lahr. And if you're a student listening to this or know Mendocino College students who need support, our mental health counselors are free to speak and work with any Mendocino College student uh, um, at any of our campuses. Being teachable and inclusive is another teaching suggestion, listening and empowering. So what I mean by that is including students in both the class and institutional level decision-making. I think it's been really cool that at Mendocino College, we've been including more students in committees and leadership groups. I just got an email from a student a couple of days ago, and she gave me some suggestions for this presentation too, where she was letting me know that she's part of our guided pathways leadership team now, which is wonderful. But having that student voice, instead of talking about how, what, what students need to do and how we need to, how we need to do it for them, like 
ask students what they need and then empower them to advocate and, and change what's going on to better serve them. I'll go through these a little bit faster so that I can get on to our community and equity uh, suggestions. So using data to inform class and institution level decision making, um, attending trainings, classes and workshops and connecting with teaching mentors. I find that to be really important. I have a lot of mentors at this college and outside of this college who I call or email or text for questions and support because I find that that allows me to be open and vulnerable and get answers and and connect with with my colleagues, but also to to get creative and and learn from them and, and improve my own practices you know, so that I can better create these environments, right, where my students feel safe and supportive. So before giving some equity-related suggestions, I just wanted to clarify what equity means. And it does not mean equality. It does not mean diversity, right? It means that every student is given the support that they individually need, which can be different depending on the student and their different identities and their different resources or lack of resources. So I like this infographic a lot, um, right? It shows people on equal ladders reaching for degrees and equality is an imagining a world in which everyone is equal. Everyone has the same ladder. Everyone started from the same rung. All the ladders work equally. You just got to climb it. But as we know, the world is not equal. We have some um, students who come from communities and schools in which there are more scholarships, in which parents and or caregivers are educated. There's private tutors. There's AP credit. There's mental health and other school resources. There's highly skilled teachers in counseling. So they're starting higher up that ladder towards their degree. And on the other end of the spectrum, students who are starting even below where the ladder starts, who are coming from these from more poorly funded schools, who are being taught by less skilled teachers, who have these counselor ratios where there are far fewer counselors um, per student and where the curriculum is, is not as expanded as it could be. So not only is not everyone starting from the same place with the same privileges and opportunities, those who are starting with more privileges and opportunities, right, myself as a cisgendered white man, right, are predominantly white and high income. And those who are starting without the same opportunities are coming from predominantly marginalized communities, predominantly marginalized racial and ethnic groups, and predominantly low income groups, too due to institutional racism and classism, as well as implicit bias, right? These, the, the ways that we think about the world being the way that the world is, rather than realizing that the way that we think about the world is based on these systemic ways of undervaluing people or, or, reali- or thinking that some people have this equal access when they don't. So in terms of what that means is uh, by being more mindful educators, by being educators who are taking into account the fact that we are teaching in this area where there's this higher rate of adverse childhood experiences 
and toxic stress, we need to also notice the racial inequities that are lying underneath that from our students. We need to acknowledge that some of the things we're doing might not be working. We need to understand that inequity is stemming from dysfunctional structures, policies, and practices. We need to question our assumptions. We need to recognize our our stereotypes as well as biases. And we got to take action to eliminate it. So in terms of being equity-minded, we want to connect students to updated campus and community resources, right? We, We don't want to say, hey, call up this counselor and give them the wrong number. Right? We want to give them the more, most recent updated number. We want to remove barriers whenever possible. For example, costly textbooks. I, for this reason, designed my creative writing class last semester to have no textbook, to just use free open access online sources. To eliminate unnecessary placement tests, we saw as an institution that we had these composition classes that were called developmental, that were below transfer level, and there was a higher incidence of students who were Black and Latinx in these classes, and we saw that they were achieving less success because they were unnecessarily placed in these developmental courses that were not transfer level, and we realized that we needed to change that, and the state realized that we needed to change that. So we now allow students to self-place into their English courses. And that's kind of a longer conversation, but that's the condensed version. As well as we got to figure out as a county, and many people are working on this, but how do we remove those internet and electronic device barriers that many of us have experienced as educators this semester, whether as teachers, as students, as parents, you are listening to KZYX. This is Vincent Pacharica, Professor of English and Mendocino College Symposia Talk, Caring Classrooms and Communities, Supporting Mendocino County Students' Mental Health Needs Now and Beyond the Pandemic. Designing culturally relevant assignments and activities. What does that mean? It means we read things that relate to students' lives. We read things that relate to students' identities. We do assignments that relate to students' lives. You know, for example, I just had an essay that might sound overly simplistic to some, but it's a reflective essay where students have to write a position paper about why they're going to Mendocino College right now. What specific reasons are they taking classes here rather than anywhere else or working or going somewhere else or doing something else, but designing assignments that are meaningful for students? We want to cultivate anti-racist classroom communities, um, you know, by practice, by knowing our own biases, by creating classrooms where students feel safe and we can call out racism in a compassionate way to, to our students, but also not allow it to happen in our classrooms. And lastly, learning about and reforming our own and our institution's biases and equities and inequities, which is a super long process that we're trying to make shorter right now by putting it at the forefront. Again, this shifting our bias is also about shifting our mindset. This comes from Dina Capsalis, who was the director of student services at the Paradise Unified School District. And I love this question. Instead of saying, 
here's the service, come and get it. It's here's the service, how can we get it to you? And I love that as an equity frame for our rural community where students do not always have access to all the things that some of our urban and suburban counterparts uh, do. Lastly, this is from Anna Bauer, again, thinking about our biases and our mindset. When we're looking at a student who's struggling in our class, whether they're falling asleep, whether they're not turning stuff in, whether they are doing any number of things, instead of saying, what's wrong with you or what did you do? You know, Bauer, who works for the organization Butte Thrives, which is an educational organization in Butte County, instead of saying, what's wrong with you? What did you do? We need to, we need to ask what has happened. And, and that's kind of the question that this presentation stems from. What's happened to folks before they come into my classrooms and how can I best serve them? Because I can't eliminate what happened before, but I certainly can create a safe, compassionate and consistent space for them. All right, I'm gonna go through this kind of quickly because I'm running out of time. But this last question, of which these are more questions and answers. How can Mendocino County provide more consistent support resources? This is a big one, right? And some of you that are listening in probably have better ideas than me, which is great. Um, and I'd love to hear them and talk about them. First wanted to quote Dr. Victor Rios. He is the Associate Dean of Social Sciences at UC Santa Barbara came to Mendocino College a couple of years ago, and I love this quote, and I'm just going to read it. And again, this is part of shifting our mindset to not just in our classrooms, but for our county. Grit alone isn't going to cut it. You can sit there and tell me all you want. Hey, man, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. But if I was born without any straps on my boots, how am I supposed to pick myself up? Job training, mentoring, counseling, teaching young people to learn from their mistakes instead of criminalizing them. It's powerful. And some of the work, some of the data we were looking at from Healthy Mendocino, this is part of that needs assessment. This is this community resilience model, whereas instead of growing these adverse childhood experiences from adverse community environments, we want to grow supportive adults and healthy households from connected systems and support. I love that. Growing supportive adults and healthy households from connected systems and supports. So what does that look like? Fewer, fewer kids in foster care, fewer youth in mental health crisis, steady employment, reduced crime, um, families drawing on their strengths. I love that too, because there's a lot of strength in this county. There's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of resilience. There's a lot of folks working together in this county and doing a lot of amazing things to support each other. Though I also think the county can make it not so hard for people to do that. Healthy Mendocino in this particular report proposed these uh, particular ideas, support family resource centers in the county through sustainable funding, support continued collaboration between public and private agencies, commit a defined percentage of, they said local cannabis tax, but I, I X'd out cannabis because I feel like that continues to be looked at as 
the primary funding source for some of these initiatives, and we need to potentially look elsewhere for that funding. Maybe it doesn't need to be a tax, maybe it can come somewhere, but committed to find percentage of some funding to support children and families and consider the impact of any policies before we make them or when we're revising them on Mendocino County's children and families. So measure B is something we voted on a few years ago, the Mental Health Treatment Act, where we voted to put some of our taxes towards providing uh, funds for more mental health treatment resources for our county. And currently, this, this is from the, the last available budget from December 9th, 2020, there's $20,670,442. So over $20.5 million remain for facilities and operation costs um, for this Mental Health Treatment Act, which is quite a bit of money. Um, with that said, what I was able to find, and maybe I'm missing some of this information, is some really cool projects that they're, they're focusing on for this Measure B at the county level, like a crisis residential treatment facility. And this is a picture of what this crisis residential facility might look like. Um, beyond those pictures and the overall budget for that, there's not a lot of updates about it. There's a mobile response team pilot for dealing with mental health crises in the county. But the last report is from March 2020. And not to get too deep into the weeds with uh, another issue, but we saw in Ukiah less than two weeks ago, an individual who was having a mental health crisis, who was naked and who was unarmed in Ukiah, instead of being responded by this mobile response team or other mental health workers, was met with law enforcement and suffered some significant injuries. I'm not going to comment beyond that, but what this mobile response team could look like, I, I don't really know. I don't really know what it's doing because the last report is from March 2020. So having some more updates about these different projects, including the psychiatric hospital facility, that's still they're still trying to figure out where that's even going to be. But providing that those updates gives the community more information with which to dialogue with the county because ideally the community members are at the center of these conversations. On that same note, updating existing county resources. You know, I, I thought one of the more egregious examples was the current Mendocino County recovery resources map for, for help with substance abuse is from November of 2012. The Ukiah Recovery Center is even called the Ford Street Project in it, which is the only residential treatment facility in the county for those dealing with substance abuse issues. And that had the wrong name and the wrong address because it's from November of 2012, along with other outdated resources. So updating some of these resources would be really helpful. I guess the, the last thing I'll say is, I thought it was really cool to see there's a cultural diversity committee for behavioral health and recovery services in Mendocino County, but the last meeting minutes are from December of 2018. So I'm not sure if that county still exists. I'm not sure what it's doing, but it would be great to have some updated uh, information about that. What can I do? Right. The question is, well, there's these, you know, what, 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 can, what can you do at the, the county level? Well, the, the best thing to do is to contact the Mendocino County Board of Supervisors. 
I will just say for the KZYX listeners, collectively, you can email the Mendocino County Board of Supervisors at the letters B-O-S at mendocinocounty.org. B-O-S at mendocinocounty.org. Just a couple more things. We want to think about how mental health continues to be stigmatized, and we want to continue to work to destigmatize it, not just in our classrooms, but also at that county level. And lastly, I think I, I really liked that our, our California Community College system, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, put out this call to action. And this call to action um, has a few different efforts, but I thought these first two efforts were really applicable to perhaps looking at from that mental health lens for our county. And, and these are coming from our Chancellor Eloy Ortiz Oakley. That first effort is to conduct a system-wide review of law enforcement officers and first responder training, conducting a, conducting a system-wide review of law enforcement officers and first responder training, and hosting an open dialogue and review so that we can review our community climate. So conducting that system-wide review of law enforcement training and first responder training and hosting more open dialogue and reviewing in order to review community climate. And I'll end with a couple questions. What other research can we do to become more trauma-informed educators in a more trauma-informed county? And what other initiatives do we need and or partnerships can we join to provide our students with more trauma and mental health-related resources? So what other research can we do to become more trauma-informed educators in a more trauma-informed county? And what other initiatives do we need and or partnerships can we join to provide our students with more trauma and mental health-related resources? And with that said, I am done. That was Vincent Pacharica, professor of English at Mendocino College. You've been listening to the Mendocino College Symposia. For further information and the PowerPoint for this talk, you can visit mendocino.edu slash symposia. I'm Mika Aguirre, professor of history at Mendocino College. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willitson Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.